This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters, a Catholic fraternal benefit society dedicated to helping members achieve financial security through life insurance while supporting the Catholic community through fraternal outreach. Hey folks, welcome to episode two of Ever Ancient, Ever New, where we seek to plumb the depths of beauty in the Christian faith. I'm your host, Jeremy Darling, here with Father Kyle Kowalsik great in to, your office. Great to be with you, yeah. It's my office, it's, it's good. We picked a great time, uh, they're mowing the lawn. Yeah, so if you hear that in the background, um, <laughs> that's, that's why. We're, uh, we're currently building our, you know, state-of-the-art, um, soundproof <laughs> studio, but... It's a nice little office. Yeah. We turned the fluorescent lights off, and we have a nice uh, little lamp glow happening here. And I'm just noticing, is this a microphone? Yeah, it's like a Bluetooth microphone. You have like a blue, uh, those are pretty nice. Yeah. We're speaking just for all the audio nerds out there. We're using a vintage, original Shure SM7 from probably 1982. Ever ancient, ever new. That's right. Mint condition. This is the same microphone uh, that Michael Jackson used on Thriller. So there's a little uh, there's a little nugget for everybody. Cool. What are, uh, what are we talking about today? We're talking about a book that you introduced me to. I love when you introduce me to books. Uh, it's called The Lost World of Genesis 1. InterVarsity Press put this out. It's by uh, John H. Walton who is a professor at Wheaton. And this is part of a, I think it's a three-book series called The Lost World Series. Very exciting. Uh, Volume 2. And this one in particular, The Lost World of Genesis 1, is ancient cosmology and the origins debate. And, and I mean, this is just, I mean, if <laughs> talking about ancient, right? This is like the first words of... The Bible, right? I mean, so, these words were written. Can't go back farther than this. Thousands of years ago, you know, passed on for for um, generations and generations, and and I think, I don't know, maybe even the most controversial part of the Bible, the most difficult to understand, and maybe one of the most important. Yep. And um, you know, I think that, that I mean, like, so from your from your background in, let's just set the stage. In yes. your background, growing up uh, as a as a Protestant, like, what's the majority opinion on Genesis one, creation of the world, on the first day, on the second day, on the third day? Et yeah, so six twenty four hour periods. Yep. Uh, young Earth, so you know, six thousand years old, um, and that was not even was never even like, well, there's some other theories. This is kind of we believe in why it was just the Bible says six days, it's six days. Right. And and there's there's a certain beauty to that of just yep. like, yeah, no, we we take the Bible for what it says. We you know, this is God's word. If he said six days, seven days, then that's that's what it is. We yeah. don't we don't argue with that. And so when science comes and says, well actually we have fossil record that goes back a billion years, they say no, it's it's actually fake. Yeah, and you get some you get some weird interpretations like, why did why did God give us dinosaur bones, dinosaur fossils? Right. Do you know why? He put it there to test us. Oh yes. Yeah. So he actually he actually tampered with the fossil record to test whether we'll believe the Bible or not. Right. And that, that's a pretty typical Protestant fundamentalist. Bible only yeah. sort of viewpoint. Yeah, right? we I the theory 
I got growing up was um, the dinosaurs couldn't fit on the ark. So that was sort of their end, end of life uh, plan, right? And there wasn't really a lot of questions around that. Um, but it was always very fascinating to me that because that part of the Bible being the oldest is just so strange, really up through Job. I think those are the really historically, the, chronologically, the first two books up through Job. It's just a lot of really weird stuff in there. That for a kid, you know, 10, 11, 12, growing up reading those things was like, okay, well, apparently there were weird beasts that blew smoke and some kind of Nephilim creatures and people lived 900 years and all of that. But there was never, um, there was never an attempt to kind of put myself back in that culture or take myself out of the 20th century and put myself in that culture. And and that's that's huge, right? And like maybe we'll do another show just kind of talking about how we actually read the Bible. But for for our current conversation, I think yeah, what what we have to say is what was what was the author of Genesis trying to say? Now I had a had a friend growing up who um very good devout uh Protestant gal, Lutheran, and I remember having this conversation with her. We were in high school I think and I didn't I didn't know a lot about my faith but I knew that as Catholics we were not required to take Genesis 1 literally right you could that is one of these things that the church is so like yeah if, if you want to take it literally yeah no no problem I mean maybe this is the way maybe this is the way it happened fine you know um, but we're not we're not required to right so you know so the the Lutheran girl going to school and somebody said, well, how do you, how do you explain this? Well, all they have recourses to is the Bible. Right. And so, I mean, kids, you know, the average, uh, the median age of kids leaving the f- Christian faith today, you know what age it is? Uh, 14. 13. 13. Yeah, so Jeez. 13. You know what the number one reason is? Science. Science. And it's questions like, like that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you think the world was created in seven days and... Um, you're wrong because science says. And then they say, Mom, Dad, what do I do? And they say, well, that's what the Bible says. And you're like, well, how do we know the Bi- yeah, Bible, you know? It's not enough. It's, it's not, not enough. a good enough answer. And I remember talking to this friend of mine, this gal, and, and saying, you can, you can believe that if you want to. But it wasn't good enough for her. She actually wanted the Catholic Church to say that you must believe that it's seven days, which is, I thought was a little bit... A little bit odd. Yeah, that must have been... I had the same experience coming into the church when I first read that. Well, we don't really have an official stance because it's not super clear. I thought, oh, finally. That's so refreshing to hear somebody. <laughs> right. Like, it, it really isn't clear. Right. Now, I mean, let's, we're going we're gonna to go way back to, um, to a man named Origen. And he was uh, first, second century um, Christianity... And uh, wrote prolifically, had amazing homilies. We have a lot of his writings. A lot of them have been lost, but early, early, early on, yep. right in Christianity, this is what he said, which I think is is it's, this is what he said. This is telling. So he says, "For one that has understanding, will supp- for who that has understanding will suppose that the first and second and third and the evening and the morning existed without a sun." and moon and stars, and that the first day was, as it were, also 
without a sky. Hmm. So what day did what day did the sun get created? The fourth day. The fourth day. All right. So he's saying like, wait, the sun is what tells us when a day has gone by. That's the 24 hours. So how is how are we saying? Oh, on day one, on day two, there's no sun, there's no stars, there's no moon, there's no sky. Hmm. And he says, and who is so foolish? as to suppose that God, after the manner of a husbandman, planted a paradise in Eden toward the east and placed in it a tree of life, visible and palpable, so that one tasting of the fruit by the bodily teeth obtained life. And again, that one was partaker of good and evil by masticating what was taken from the tree. And if God is said to walk in the paradise in the evening and Adam to hide himself under a tree, I do not suppose that anyone doubts that these things figuratively indicates certain mysteries, the history having taken place in appearance and not literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so way, 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 way back, this is what Origen is saying. And, uh, and St. Augustine, uh, you know, in the fourth century says something similar. He says this, uh, the creator, after all, about whom scripture told this story of how he completed and finished his work in six days, is the same as the one about whom it is written elsewhere, and assuredly, without there being any contradiction, that he created all things simultaneously together. That's in the book of Sirach in the Old Testament. So scripture can't contradict itself. Right. And so how do we uh, harmonize how do we things? harmonize those things? You know? And and so there there must be a, a way in which, okay, there there's this is figurative or this is explaining one thing and this is another. I have a friend who was just telling me this the other day, he's a He's a Protestant uh, convert. He's a Catholic priest now. He, uh, he went to a really good uh, Christian high school, and they really formed them to think and defend their faith. And so he's in college, and he has this uh, ancient literature class, I think. And in the ancient literature class, they, uh, one, of the, one of the things that the, the professor decided to do was disprove the Bible. And so basically he read Genesis 1, which says, you know, on the first day, on the second day, on the third day. And then he reads Genesis 2, which says that, you know, when God created man and woman, he did it in this way. And so it's, it's slightly different. And he goes, see, there's the, there's the contradiction. There, there's, that's why. And then my friend raises his hand and goes, um, so which of those propositions exactly are contradictory? And the professor looks at it and goes, uh, well, um, because they don't actually contradict each other. Correct. And they're just two different versions of, of telling a story that's um, not meant to be taken literally. Right, which again, as a kid reading 8, 9, 10, 11, I was always like, am I reading two different versions here? Like, No one, no one told me, well, these are what they are and how they were written and when they were written. I had no background, any context at all. It was just like, I didn't know until way later that Moses was credited as being the author of Genesis. You know, there's none of that context. But what's interesting, too, is it's lines like these that atheists will use. Hmm. Well, God is all-seeing, but they were hiding from God, and he had to look for them. Mm-hmm. How's that possible? Right. It says right here, he's looking for them, right. so God can't be all-seeing, all-knowing. Right. And there's a number of passages like that. Uh, you know, before uh, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it said he, he was going to come down and have a look for himself to see if it was true. Right. Okay, well, <laughs> yes. So there are passages in the style of writing at that period of time in the Bible that were had to have been in some way um, figurative. Yeah. 
to address the understanding of the people at the time, and that's what this book addressed better than anything I've ever read. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when I when I first read it, I was just like, wow. And I don't even know I don't even know how I came across it. I think I saw I it on ask. it was on uh, it was on Audible, and it was one of the books that. Like if you have a subscription, you yes, could listen to it for to- free. It was and, included. It's yeah, and, and so I was like, oh, this this kind of looks interesting. I let, I read the first bit of it, and I was, just, wow, this is this is this is good. And it just it actually corroborated several of the things that I'd been listening to. So so whenever I, I you know I, I can be suspect, I'm like, hey, I've never heard this before. You know, is he just? Um, but Scott Hahn actually has a similar. Uh, a similar take on Genesis, the first uh, Genesis one, uh, and and what it's actually getting at. And so I was like, oh okay, no, I got Scott Hans on on my side. Yes, and John Walton, who wrote this book, is not Catholic, right? I don't know what he is. He's at Wheaton. Yeah, um, maybe he's. He taught at Moody. Yeah, so it's not Catholic. I couldn't ascertain it, but he's definitely not Catholic. And he's got. Some, so I'll read some reviews. I'll read one from N. T. Wright who's the Anglican Bishop of Durham, tremendous uh, theologian, especially on on Christ. And I'll read another one after that. John Walton, this is from N.T. Wright. John Walton's expertise in the ancient Near Eastern sources enables him to shed a flood of new and unexpected light on the deeper meaning of Genesis 1. The creator, Genesis is saying, designed heaven and earth as a great temple with the intention of coming to live in it himself. And the Sabbath isn't just a nice break after the work is done, but the moment when he takes up residence in the world he has just made. The implications of this resonate right through the rest of the Bible. This is not just a book to invite creationists to think differently. It is a book to help all Bible students read the whole of Scripture with fresh eyes. That's a fantastic synopsis. It's so, it's so good. And I, that's, so we live, we live in a scientific, artistic world. Yes. Right? Science is the religion. It's the new God. And and what is what does science try to get after? Like what is science trying to tell us? Where we came from, origins. Right. Like but what what kind of origins? Like like time history. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's like once the, science can tell us like where what, it all started. What something? Well, it can't even do that. Yeah, you know, correct. like the science, they still don't know where or, or it can. It can tell us what, right? It's like, hey, human beings are made out of atoms and molecules. Yeah, and, and so it can tell us. It can tell us things like this. It can't tell us. It can't tell us why though. Right. And so when we when we read Genesis in you know in the modern world. This is what we're imbued. This is what we grew up with. Like, hey, this is how the this is what the stars are made out of. Right. We and this know is these what, things. We can't go to Saturn because of the pressure and this and the you know like we, we we've discovered these things, but why? Right. And and this is this is the argument that that Walton makes is the ancients they didn't they didn't care about what something was made out. No, of. not gravity. No sense of gravity. What the stars were. What the moon was. Doesn't matter to them. And and in scripture, the the Lord never corrects people on their faulty science. Right. Right. From one end of the earth, the sun rises and runs its course, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's that's scripture because the Lord's like, well, 
I mean, eventually they realize that the Earth goes around the, yeah. the sun, but you know, let's just not go there right now. It's right. like, no, it's, this, it's not, this isn't its concern. And so it's not the concern of the er- early people who Genesis being written to, or what the Lord is trying to, the Holy Spirit is trying to do. It's not what things are made out of. It's not, it's not even like how things literally came into, you know, to, to fashion. Correct. It's, it's why. That's a why did the Lord create? Who created right. the Lord? Actually, who in this situation, like the Genesis writers, is not apologetics. They're not like trying to prove anything. Right. Everybody knows that God created the world. We're showing. Well, why, why? did he? Why did he do that? And that's a that's a very different approach from modern, m- most modern Protestants when they're trying to combat uh, uh, Darwin, evolution, atheism, all those kind of things. We're talking about what, and and. The truth is, the honest truth, is that there's not a lot of science in the Bible. Now, of course, we can talk about uh, the Lord is in the throne above the circle of the earth, mm-hmm. right? And, and so we, we knew pretty early on that the earth is a circle, whatever that meant, a sphere of some kind. Um, but y- you can't go in the Bible and find biology, right. metamorphosis, you know, all of these, these, and especially if you're going back then to a time when people didn't even know where rain came from. Right. He made a great point, like, for all they knew, there was some kind of covering that would, like, briefly be removed, like a curtain, and then water would fall. So they, they thought that, like, something was holding water back, and that whenever the earth needed rain, this covering was removed, you know? They didn't understand clouds and mm-hmm. cumulonimbus and any of those things. So how do you communicate this concept to people then? A book that was not written for twentieth or twenty-first century right. minds. Yeah, and that's 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 maybe I don't know if it's rule number one, but it's definitely the top top five <laughs> rules of reading scripture. Like you can't read scripture in your anachronistic mindset of like, oh, you know, because then you're always looking for the wrong thing. You're asking the wrong questions. Right. You know. Right. Trying to be a young, you know, thirty-year-old Jewish man or woman in this time and place 5,000 years ago, what was my concept of everything? Because this is who it was given to first. It's still the same, you know, scripture hasn't changed, but that really matters when we're talking about interpretation. And I never read the Bible that way. Right. Was never read the Bible that way. I just sort of assumed knowledge had been the same in at least many things. Although had someone sat down and said, well, you know, back then they didn't have cars. I knew that. But you kind of forget, you know, like in your imagination, you might still see those things like, oh, yeah, you know, no cars. There's no, there's no cars. Right. right. And, and they're not wearing blue jeans, actually, either. Yeah. You, know. you start to put things together. Okay, so there's another great review. I'm trying to say that there's a broad range of consensus here across denominations on, on this book. So this is from Bruce Waltke, the professor of Old Testament Reformed Theological Seminary. Walton's Cosmic Temple Inauguration view of Genesis 1 is a landmark study in the interpretation of that controversial chapter. On the basis of ancient Near Eastern literatures, a rigorous study of the Hebrew word bara, which means create. And it's only used... It's only used here. When God is doing something. Correct. I can make something. I can't create something. Correct. That's extremely important. Again, understanding Hebrew is very helpful. And uh, so understanding the rigorous study of the Hebrew word bara and a cogent and sustained argument, Walton has gifted the church with a fresh interpretation of Genesis 1. His view that 
the seven days refers to the inauguration of the cosmos as a functioning temple where God takes up his residence as his headquarters from which he runs the world merits reflection by all who love the God of Abraham. It's just a breathtaking, to, to me again, I get to keep everything I knew and I get I gain the whole universe mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with an extremely eye-opening interpretation of this passage of understanding the world as God's temple. Yeah, and one of the things that he does a nice job at is he takes he takes from ancient Near Eastern literature also and uh, does a little bit of a comparison. You know, Genesis makes a lot more sense when you see the other type of things that were being written about the Babylonian gods, for instance. And uh, when, when they created the world, you, you see stark differences, okay? So their gods create the world. They create, the, and oftentimes there's, there's fighting, there's infighting, there's death, there's destruction, and they make human beings, why? To be slaves, you know, right. because they need them for something. And here we get Genesis, and he made man and woman in his own image and put them in the garden. It's beautiful. And you say, well, why is he, is he he's, and he wants them to plant for them and grow food for, for them. Nope. Nope, he didn't, didn't say that. He just, just put, them, put them in a really beautiful garden. And that's, that's the fundamental difference. And so we can see in, in Genesis 1, God is, God is creator. God's the creator. He, he's all-powerful. He, he creates with ease. Uh, he says at the end, it's good. It's good. I have used that argument so much over the last year because there's a strain of Christianity, Christian thought, um, primarily dominant, you, you find among Calvinists, maybe Presbyterians, um, that focus on our filthy rags mm. and um, our ugliness before God. And I always take these, these brethren back and say, yeah, but God, he really likes us. He made something good, yeah. and, and he likes us. Even before we know him and come to be Christians, he likes us. He thinks we're, our sin is, be, is ugly, right? But he likes us because he made us. Mm-hmm. And he made, what he made was good, and we're fearfully and wonderfully made. But that, that is maybe one of the most critical verses in Scripture. God is finished and says it's good. Yeah. He inaugurates good. Yeah, and, and once, once we get out of our minds, out of our 20, 21st mind, century mindset of, um, oh, oh, great, it's telling us, telling us how everything came into being. And we get into, oh, wait, he's showing us something deeper. He's showing right. us some whys. He's showing us he, he created out of pure goodness. He created a good world. Uh, it was it was through the, the we will get to, you know, the devil and sin and stuff after that, but... It, there's there's something more beautiful, something more poetic, something more uh, that we can reflect on and pray on, and uh, and just be with. You know? Right, right. It's uh, to me it was uh, that the whole temple idea was just unbelievable. But we, he got to a word. This is when things really shifted for me. Was the word day, hmm. and he made a really good point. He said, "Okay, so day, sure, twenty four. We think of that as twenty four hours." He said, well, "If we go forward a little bit." To after the fall, well, before the fall, when he warns about the fruit, he says, don't eat it because on that day, you'll die. Okay, so they ate the fruit, but they didn't, but they didn't die, die that day. 
What the heck? Yeah. This is like 900 years later. We just disproved scripture again. <laughs> okay. So I thought, is this the part where he's going to say, well, it was actually two different Hebrew words for day? No. It's the same word. Hmm. It, was the, it was the same word. That to me was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, that, that makes sense. The, the critical part here is we're not talking, we're, we're talking about pre-fall. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the timeline, the Bible does give us a human timeline, post-fall, from Adam to Cain, Seth, right, their ages, all of that. We get a, we get a real timeline that I think is literal. And at some point, people stop living. It certainly could be, and it doesn't have to be. Yeah, correct. But that timeline, so again, this is what the Catholic Church so beautifully teaches, you know, you can kind of hold them both there in, in tension. It, the timeline stays the same. So for these sort of hardcore creationists, and I've had conversation with them around this book, I, I'm not saying that there was like then evolution for millions of years mm-hmm. post-fall. What I'm saying is, you know, I believe this even before I was Catholic, the hand of God creating the world could look like anything in a fossil record. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It could look like a million years. And I think it was, wasn't it a, a, a Jesuit priest who first proposed the Big Bang yeah. theory? Okay, so I, again, before I was Catholic, thought, well, sure, I, I can get around that. God spoke and bang, there is everything. All right. What that looks like, the imprint that must have left on the galaxy and on Earth could be very hard for us to ascertain. Right. What happened after the fall when death... Because that's the other question John talks about is death. Man's death entered after the fall, but probably death was present among vegetation, oh, yeah. animals, things yeah. like that. Never occurred to me. Right. Like, was the lion laying down with the lamb? And what this is a, there's a there's a uh, little work by um, uh, Mark Twain, who was an avid atheist, even though he also wrote a really fascinating book about Joan of Arc. He really, had a, he loved Joan of Arc. Total atheist, love Joan of Arc, but he wrote that. this book on Adam and Eve, and um, and in it, it's I mean, it's kind of their diary, and there's some funny parts like Eve gives birth to a baby, and they don't really know what it is, and Adam thinks it's a fish, and so he's recounting, he's like, yeah, I took the fish and put it in the water today, the woman got really mad at me and took <laughs> took him out before I could make any real observations, but. What happens in it is all the, all the lions and tigers are, you know, they just eat grass until the fall, and then they grow teeth, and now they start attacking each other and stuff like this. It's like, that's, that's actually not what we believe yeah. as Catholics. The animals have a certain nature, and they've always had that nature. Death in, in Genesis, uh, is, it's, a, it's a spiritual death. God isn't saying you're going to die right now. He's saying you, you brought death into the world. You, you actually sold yourselves in slavery to death and to sin and to the kingdom yeah. of, of the devil. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, but, but I think this is, this is kind of the, the conundrum, right, for take your modern high schooler. Hey, your Bible says the world was created in seven days. And the only way to like, you know, even the way that I would, you know, kind of, it's like, well, we don't know how long that, those, that fourth day was or, you know, the fifth day, you know, could have been thousands of years, millions of years, and the dinosaurs and evolution all could have happened right in there. And that's, right. that's problem. No, no problem, right? But it's still kind of hard to jam in there. 
And this is actually a lot easier. You say, oh, yeah, no problem with evolution. I have no problem with the Big Bang. I have no problem with uh, whatever you, whatever science says. Great. That's That sounds great because Genesis is telling me why I'm here. Right. And that God loves me and that, that God has a plan for the human race. And, right. Um, I think the hard part becomes, and this is probably something we should discuss in a future episode, is explaining to kids especially, oh, you don't have to take the Bible literally. Like, you have to take it literally according to the genre right. that you're in. <laughs> right. Right. How, how, is this, how is this meant to be understood? You have to take it that way. If we, if we get to other passages, like, well, you don't have to take Jesus' crucifixion literally, well, now you're into... Correct. Problem. This is why this is why biblical scholarship. And I've been reading the Bible since I was eight. Hmm. Eight years. I started reading like four or five. My parents had, and I'm so grateful for the devotion to have their children learn how to read. But from eight to mid thirties, there was very little um, attempt at historical scholarship or biblical scholarship of any kind. And so most of my time was spent in the book of Psalms mm. and Proverbs. I'm a, I'm a musician. I'm an artist. I, I, I felt there was, there is, and always will be beautiful life applications from, the, from Psalms and Proverbs. And now, of course, the book of wisdom has expanded greatly for me. I'm thankful for that. And then a lot of the New Testament. But I, I just didn't spend a lot of time in Genesis and... Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of those things, because it's just, it's just kind of wild. And I never read, I mean, I was reading NIV for a long time. I am, um, I'm not a fan currently of NIV. I'll always hold it dear in my heart, but I'm not a fan of it. I never read the little footnotes and things like, now that I'm exploring those things and getting into even, again, we're not talking about a Catholic scholar, you know, this, this, this is just an Old Testament Protestant scholar. Mm-hmm. Like, this is profound and beautiful. The cosmos, the temple, even... The temple. The te- uh, well, we got to talk about that, because oh, that was the thing that you I said. I mean, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of like the main, the main place where he goes that, uh, you know, each day is constructing a, a piece of the temple, and when you get into Leviticus and, uh, and, and Exodus, and where, where they're constructing the tent and then the tabernacle, and the, you 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 get little glimpses of this same type of thing that they're they're creating something. This is this is fascinating when you get into like the, I mean the temple was everything. That was the place where the, the glory of the Lord dwelt. Right. And so what is what is Genesis one saying that the glory of the Lord dwells where? In all of creation. Yeah. You know, it's not meant to be limited into, you know, the place where you think that he, and is this, this is where it comes back later when the temple actually gets destroyed in 70 AD and Jesus predicted that in 33 AD and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this fascinating part of what, what happens on the seventh day? What happens on the seventh day, Jeremy? God rests. He rests. Was he tired? <laughs> right. God speaks and it comes into existence. That doesn't sound like a lot of work. Right. Quite honestly, no offense, God. Uh, he's all powerful. God doesn't need to rest. Right. Furthermore, what did he do on the eighth day? Yeah. Doesn't. Everything's done. <laughs> the world runs itself. What did he do on the ninth day? The tenth day? The, the third month? The fifteenth year? The seventh decade? He continues to rest, apparently, 
but what's, what's that mean? And we see later in, in Psalms and different places, well, in, in an ancient, other ancient literature, well, what's it mean to, for, for, for someone to take up their rest? Um, you know, when's a temple become a temple? When the, when the people take up their, when the God takes up his residence in the temple. Right. Right. Yeah. When God is there, like, so if you're, you know, when's a church become a church? Well, not until you say the first mass there, the bishop consecrates the altar and Jesus is in the tabernacle. Yeah. It's like, now it's a church. Yeah. And And look how far that stretches back. Yeah. I, I never had a concept. T- to me, my concept of church was people in the church. Two, I've been told, and by well-meaning Christians that love Jesus, two people is enough for church. Just the two of us sitting alone, we're a church. Okay, well, the Bible doesn't say that anywhere for those in the sola scriptura crowd. The Bible does not say two people make a church. It definitely says the Lord is present. Sure. Doesn't make it a church. So what does that mean? And, and there was this incredible moment when it all kind of coalesced and you realized that the ancient Jewish temples were kind of designed almost like the Garden of Eden. Mm. And the Garden of Eden itself was designed like the cosmos mm-hmm. itself. I, I, I should have pulled the And passages. that's why some, sometimes you see in, in, in churches, you know, if you go to, go to Rome, go to, go to France, you see these, these beautiful churches and you might have uh, a dark blue ceiling with stars and you have the pillars, and you have that big dome arch, and you have all these things. Why? It's a, it's a microcosm. It's a, it's a miniature universe. Because that's where the Lord first took up his rest, and now he's taken up his rest in this miniature version. That's what the ancient Jews understood the temple to be. Yeah. It's a microcosm. And that's what Catholics have continued. Yeah. I, I was just... <laughs> I mean, there were moments... I should apologize to the listeners. I'm recovering from a cold. Father's being very gracious to me as I'm trying to cough over my shoulder. But that moment, well, once you told me to read the book and explain just the brief little temple, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I just, I was like waiting for that moment. But it was a, it was a, for my Christian faith, for my love for God, was like, that was the moment like, yeah. I can totally get in my head. Yeah. This makes total sense from what I've been reading. From the God I know right. and the faith that I have loved and lived, this makes the most sense. It doesn't answer, okay, well, carbon dating, blah, blah, blah. You're not going to find that not in, in the, the Bible. Bible. Not... We get to unpack these mysteries. We didn't, we didn't care about carbon dating until the 1900s. Right, right. So in, in the midst of all of that, this book to me was like, as we approach scripture, we'll get to that probably in another episode. But as we approach the reading of scripture, it really helped me read scripture with fresh eyes. Because that's what we want as Christians, yeah. right? Yeah. A fresh set of eyes that the Lord newly reveals something to us as we're reading. Uh, I was like, I got to go back and read Genesis all over again. And now I want to study Hebrew a little bit. <laughs> right, right. I have only so much time. But of course, this is the, the great adventure of the Christian life ever ancient, ever new is um, unpacking the mystery of God yep. until yep. we get to see him. And we've, we've heard this passage, we know this passage, and there's still something new to be gleaned. To I be mean, gained. yeah, now, like, <laughs> beyond anything I could have ever yep. conjured up without books like this. So thank you, uh, uh, John Walton, for writing this book. We'll include a link 
uh, below for folks to check this book out, controversial as it may be. Uh, it's got a lot of great reviews from uh, uh, Calvinist uh, theological seminaries, Reformed theological seminaries. And I did check with some Catholic priests who I know who are super smart and super old and well-read, and they gave it the, uh, the sign of approval also. Okay, so, so we're good. We're good. <laughs> we're good there. Catholic approved. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening to uh, episode two of Ever Ancient, Ever New, and we'll see you next time. At Catholic Order of Foresters, we're committed to bringing Catholic values to life and financially protecting Catholic families right here in Minnesota. Our members enjoy benefits like scholarship eligibility and peace of mind knowing their family is secure, even if something happens to them. Each year, thousands join us to support people in need through our Feeding God's Children events, spirituality tap-ins, and mission trips. Wouldn't you love to be a part of an organization that embodies your Catholic values? Find out how you can be a part of Catholic Order of Foresters by calling General Agent Brian Markiton at 763-658-4009. That's Brian at 763-658-4009.